Trauma not transformed is trauma transferred. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Welcome back. (laughs) I already said that. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Hi, if you're new, I'm Andrea, and I'm a shit show. Clearly. Welcome. Buckle up. Um, I'm sitting here right now, and directly across the room from me, what I see is a bottle of hand sanitizer. Now, if you're in the Patreon, you probably know about this this bottle of hand sanitizer, but let me share with the rest of you. So, I had a I had a first date uh, that was a last date, <laughs> the first date that did not become a second date, and um, a gift that this gentleman walked into my home and um, he had a bottle of. He said, "I have a gift for you," and I was like, first I thought it was a bottle of lube. Like I really thought it was a bottle of lube." Um, and then I realized that it was a bottle of hand sanitizer. It was like, we're talking like, um, like a contact solution size bottle of, of hand sanitizer. I do not believe that this individual, um, that he, uh, he stopped specifically to get this for me. Although that would be great. Like I, I kind of wish that he did, (laughs) but I really think he, I don't, I don't know. I think he just had it in his car or something. And was like, oh, I'll just give this to her. How romantic, right? Yeah, it started off that way. It did not get any better. Um, It only got worse. And the real icing was when he texted me like a week later. So let me just say this. Thank God I was not into this guy. Cause so we had a date on a Sunday and then I didn't hear from him until Friday Thank God I wasn't into him because I would have been, I would have been a little stressed out. Uh, I didn't respond, which was appropriate given everything that had occurred. Got to join the Patreon if you want to hear those details, but it was appropriate for me to not respond. And so when I did not respond the next day, he sent me a text and he said, I guess I might, I must be, um, Brian number three. How dare you? How dare you call yourself a Brian? You're not even a Ryan, okay? You don't get what a diss to Brian number one and Brian number two for this bozo who gives hand sanitizer on a first date um, to refer to himself as Brian. Uh uh-uh. uh, no, sir. Uh, moving it along. So today we are diving deep with a shit show like us, but also. Uh, someone who helps shit shows like us. So we're joined by Alex Castro-Croy. He's a therapist, a trauma therapist. He's um, based out of out of Denver. And this is a goodie. This is a goodie. And I say that about all. What if one time I'm just like, guys, this this one coming up, this interview coming up just sucks ass. <laughs> just just listen to it until until it gets to like the transitionary music. So I can at least get like the downloads, but like this one's horrible. So don't even, don't even bother. I'll let you know if that ever is the case. Okay. But today that's not the case. We're, di- we're diving into a lot of different things. I feel like this is one that's like worthy 
of um, maybe you want to have a pen and paper out. I shouldn't be saying this. This is like when somebody tells you that like a TV show is going to be really good or a movie and then it's never good because your expectations were set high. So let me rephrase. This interview is like so-so, okay? Like this is just so-so. I don't know if you're going to be better. You're not going to be any worse off after listening to this. I'm not sure if you're going to be better. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's so-so, but, but keep listening. <laughs> keep listening to it and maybe have a pen and paper. Uh, one of the things that we're talking about is this process of, of inner alchemy. So about how our, our transformation, this recovery process that we're going through is essentially, you know, an alchemical process of us turning our pain into gold, turning our trauma into gold. And I'm really feeling that. I'm really feeling that. And it's a message that I'm at least trying to convey to all y'all that it's much more than just peeling. It's about thriving. And I truly believe that that all of our pain serves such a, a great purpose. And it's hard to see that in the moment, but it always has been the case for me. Um, I want to read you this quote that I found. I've been going on like an inner alchemy deep dive on, on the interwebs. And this one quote says, um, self-transformation means being responsible for our own stuff and not projecting it onto others. It does not matter what stage you are at in your self-transformation process because all stages are necessary and you will be going over each stage many times in your life. What matters is that you are honest with yourself and you are trying to change, which many people unfortunately can't be bothered to do and they continue to add to the madness in this world. So guess what? If you're listening to these words right now, you are trying to change. So give yourself a little pat, pat, pat on the back. Uh, Okay, let's move it along to the interview. But of course, let me first push all my shit. Okay, let let me sell. So the Patreon group, guys, this is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups Uh, We have a WhatsApp chat group going on all the damn time. And I want to read you this quote that I just found. And I'm rereading Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Bradshaw. Such a good book. And I found a quote in there that is truly like really good um, a promo for me or a good way for me to try to convince you to join this group of shit shows. So it says, finding a social network. The best way to come out of hiding is to find a non-shaming intimate person or social network. The operative word here is intimate. We have to get on a core gut level because shame is core gut level stuff. Toxic shame masks our deepest secrets about ourselves. It embodies our belief that we are essentially defective. We feel so awful, we dare not look at it ourselves, much less tell anyone. The only ways we can find out we were wrong about ourselves is to risk exposing ourselves to someone else's scrutiny. When we trust someone else and experience their love and acceptance, we begin to change our beliefs about ourselves. We learn that we are not bad. We learn that we are lovable 
and acceptable. So that is what we be doing in this group. We're helping you see that you're not bad. You're a shit show, but you're not bad. And we're going to love you and accept you until you can do that for yourself. So thank you, thank you, thank you to these fine folks for joining the damn group. Jessica, Brianne, Taylor, uh, Emmanuel, Elizabeth, Max, Ruth Ann, Margaret, Patricia, Jacqueline, and Jill. Thank you. Thank you, fine folks. Um, you can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And whatever you do, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you very, very much. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, y'all. What is my pleasure to introduce Alex Castro Croy to the podcast? How the hell are you doing today, sir? I am doing great. I'm honored and um, humbled to be here with you. I absolutely love the content and um, how you are able to enrich the community with a lot of your gifts. So thank you for having me. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, You are... I don't know if it's, I don't know if the gold, golden goose is the right term, um, <laughs> but you know how rare you are. You are a therapist out there who knows what an adult child is mm-hmm. and who's actually doing the damn work yourself. Correct. Do you have like no availability? <laughs> well, actually, uh, I actually stepped away from doing a lot of availability, but I do a lot more training a lot more um, uh, training and a lot more intentional work with people who are ready to do the work. Does that Mm, make sense? mm -hmm. So I run a men's alchemy group, a men's trauma group at my agency um, with a lot of uh, core concepts of trauma focus, CBT, DBT, union depth concepts, which include a lot of the ACA content as well, inner child archetypal work. Um, inner teenager, inner wounding. Um, And so I use a lot of the uh, Greek definition of trauma, which is wound. Um, And that really opens, it destigmatizes the conversation and it opens up, um, it helps men open up, especially about their wounds and not look at it as a weakness. Yes, weakness, psychopathology, sickness. It's like, oh, this is like a cut that I got. Oh, you got a cut too? Let's talk about how we got cut. Oh, I love that. And so they open up. And so I do a a men's group every Saturday mornings at eight in the morning. And then I'm starting a Spanish speaking group on uh, Tuesday nights. And then my staff, I've trained my staff to do a females alchemy group. Um, And they're going to start a Spanish female alchemy group. So we do trauma, uh, trauma and addiction groups in Spanish and English with components of um, adult children with dysfunction, either um, adult children of alcoholics or adult children with dysfunctional families. So, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I have a ton of questions there. But first, I have to say this and my audience is probably getting sick of me saying this. But like, why are there so many damn therapists out there who can't tell us that we're an adult child? 
I think a lot of people don't uh, understand, even though it does have um, uh, the 12 step, a lot of people don't necessarily subscribe to 12 steps, higher power, yeah. but it's, I think if anything, it's a resource and a tool. I've had a lot of people who don't necessarily subscribe, but the higher power can be 80 year old me. Well, no, um, I just mean that like that are that the reason that we're fucked up is because of our childhood. Like, I oh. just feel like so many of us go in therapy yeah, and they never tell us what's actually wrong with us. <laughs> I think also it determines it, it. it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And when we look at different people's modalities, I think about solution focused therapy. We're not going to we're going to deal with the here and now a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's look at the thought connected to the emotion where when we talk about adult children of um, ICA, adult children of dysfunctional families, we go into family systems. We go into um, uh, unhealthy patterns of thinking, unhealthy patterns, uh, early childhood schemas, only early childhood templates that were passed on. Um, and then there's a component of trauma too that requires a lot of work. And here's the other thing too, Andrea. That Andrea, just so you Andrea, know. Andrea. I'll, I'll tell you if you call me Andrea. Andrea, <laughs> Andrea uh, that um, a lot of times it's uncomfortable for a lot of people who haven't done their work to hold space for people Absolutely. who are to do their work. And so you cannot give what you don't have. And if I haven't dealt with my trauma, if I haven't dealt with my inner child work, how can I hold space for you to do your own? Okay. So the last question on this, and I like to ask this too. So what would be some good questions for some, if they're interviewing a therapist, what are some good questions to ask to see if they're going to be able to, and, and when I say adult child, I don't mean like, you know, 12 step based, but I mean, you know, like the adult child syndrome. Yeah. Right, um, right, right. What are some good um questions that someone could ask a potential therapist to see if whether or not they're going to be a good fit i when i used to interview for my therapist i always asked them are you aware of intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. are you aware of how it impacts the inner child archetypal psychology obviously and because that's the huge piece mm -hmm. of um aca and then number three have you done your work do you do your work? Do you get uh, counseling? Do you get um, consultation around your clients? That's a fair question. Because if you do your therapy, that means you go get your oil change. That means that you go get maintenance. Mm -hmm. If you do peer consultation, it means that you talk to other clinicians and therapists to pick their brain about something that you don't know. So mm. that lets me know that you have, you are open to growth and you mm. are open to learning. And I am not responsible to teach you. So what's something that you've reached out to another uh, practitioner to pick their brain about? I think for me, one of the uh, key pieces that I've done is a lot with uh, around uh, sex addiction, polyamory. Um, when I started doing uh, work with people who are addicted to sex, I realized I wasn't well-versed with that. And so uh -huh. especially with polyamory, people who are engaged in polyamory, um, ethical non-monogamy, I realized this is a whole new area that I don't I don't know. And so I did peer consultation with that to see like, hey, you work with people who have positive sexual um, uh, psychology. So let's talk about what that looks like. I'm working with clients who are polyamorous, ethical non-monogamy, and I would like to uh, learn a little bit more and how is that connected 
if it's connected at all with sexual abuse, um, because mm. they can't say, you know, if, if that's even something to consider. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, but that's where I'm able to consult with other people and look at what that looks like. So what the hell is an alchemy group? Alchemy is when you think about uh, science, alchemy is when you take a basic material and convert it into gold. It was it was it was said to be uh, there was alchemists in Egypt. There was they had apothecary. It's kind of like they would make medicine, if you may. But when we talk about it in psychological terms, it's when you have an event in your life that happened that you're able to transform it into something meaningful. Mm, I love that. So when we talk about alchemy and in psychology, Carl Jung uh, coined that term. And he said, you know, there are things in your life that have happened and you don't necessarily need to get stuck on that. It can be alchemical. It can lead to transformation of the soul, transmutation of soul, meaning that you, it can serve as a launching pad to find meaning and purpose if you allow yourself to trust the process of transmutation. And so it all happens through alchemy. Yeah. I'm leaning into that. Yeah. I think yeah. I'm an alchemist. Listeners, yeah. you tell me if you think I, I think that I'm an alchemist. <laughs> I think to a certain extent we all are when we look at our, our, our trauma, when we look at our wounds as children, and when we're, we're able to actually sit with it and look at, you know, I've had child abuse, I've had neglect, and I'm able to look at it and see I am not, I'm not going to transfer this trauma on. I'm going to mm-hmm. transform it. Mm-hmm. Remember, trauma not transformed is trauma transferred. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, a chemical process is being able to sit with it, own it and say, yeah, I'm not responsible for the trauma that was done to me, but I am responsible for my healing. And so part of that is seeing what is the trauma? What's the wound that has impacted me mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally? And how has it impacted me and to get stuck in relationships, stuck in my um, mind, stuck in addiction, stuck in um, unhealthy uh, workplace? How has it got me stuck in scarcity? It's a big one, like thinking that I'm not enough. And how am I going to work through that, tending to my wounds and allowing myself to heal in the process and not stay stuck? That's alchemy. So to be able to, and, and it's, a, there's a sense of empowerment there too. Absolutely. Like I, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a victim. I am a survivor. I'm not going to allow it to have power over me. I'm going to empower myself to rise up despite of it. One of the things I've very, I'm very appreciative of is that because we are able to go through the uh, um, alchemy process or transmutation of soul it Mm. makes us better to hold space for ourselves and for others because I've been there because Mm -hmm. I've done that not to minimize your experience I can hold space I can sit with you as you process and work through yours does that make sense I can support you I can help you and I can empathize with you as well and that's what makes this fellowship piece of being able to connect through podcasts, through friendships, through, you know, meetings with other people. Make, you know what? I'm not alone. People have overcome this. People have re- risen above this. And it's inspiring and motivation, motivating to see and hear their stories and um, gives me the strength to continue moving forward and not get stuck. Mm. So 
I, I saw that you were on another podcast and it, the, t- the title of the episode was the medicine is in the wound. Yes. Do you want to expand on that? Yes, definitely. Um, you did your own work. <laughs> yeah. I'm a stalker. I'm a mild stalker. Proud so of it. The, the concept of the medicine that came, um, is in the wound came from the analogy of penicillin. Penicillin medicine came from bacteria. After a certain time of the bacteria starts growing, growing, and starts transmuting, starts evolving. Think about penicillin. It's one of the strongest medicines that we use, and it came from bacteria. And so when we look at the medicine is in the wound, we don't have to look outside for our medicine. We have to look inside our wounds, tend to that. And we will get our penicillin. We will get our medicine when we lean into it, when we tend to it, when we hold um, space for ourselves through meditation, through prayer, through art, through music, whatever your um, uh, spiritual practice is to tend, you will find medicine and healing when you sit with that part of yourself. What we tend to do is we're always looking outside of ourselves. Let me find the best doctor, the best chiropractor, the best, you know, uh, you know, therapist. This is okay. How about you sit with yourself <laughs> and you tend to yourself? And and you realize in doing so, not only do you honor your wounds, but you also give space for healing. And you uh-huh. don't get distracted by um, the masses, you don't get distracted. You're able to sit and just be, not do. Mm-hmm. Love. Yeah. Okay. Tons of other questions, but let's talk about you, sir. Yes. Um, did you have an adult child bottom? I, yes. Let's it hear it. Was, yes. So <laughs> for those, who, so a little bit of my background, um, I grew up in a uh, religious home. My parents are Pentecostal Christians. And where'd you grow I, up? In Southern California. In okay. Southern California, Redlands. Um, and so my parents, um, and mind you, this, uh, and, and I, I say this so that people can understand, I'm, when I speak about my parents, I'm speaking from a place of healing now, healed place, not Yes, hurt. people know, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I, I want to uh, reiterate, so my parents um, were very religious, uh, very dogmatic, where when they found out that I identified as gay, they totally rejected me. They totally um, despised me. I was not uh, uh, welcomed in the circle of the family um, because- What age was that that you came out? Mm, I, when I officially came out was, and I, I turned in my keys cause I was a church. Uh, I was a pastor, a youth pastor and a pastor of a church. So I, I officially came out the first time around 11 and 12 and that was not accepted. What was that experience? When did you start to feel that way? And then who did you tell? I, I was about six. I was in sixth grade. Uh-huh. Um, I started really liking um, a, a juvenile, a, another kid that was next to my, sat next to my desk. I really enjoyed. I thought you were going to say like a juvenile detention officer. <laughs> <laughs> no, another kid. I was a kid. You know, your first love you, you saw. Um, and I remember I came home and I had mentioned that I really enjoyed this person's company. And what do you mean? What do you mean? Um, well, I enjoyed spending time with them. I enjoyed interacting. And I said something to the effect of, I feel like I like them the way you like mom. Mm. And that was a big no-no. 
I was not, that was not accepted. So, um, so my track became very focused. Who am I hanging with? What am I doing? Um, where am I going? So we became like the Jackson Five family where we would play music. I would have to play the guitar, <laughs> my play bass. My other brother played the drums. My sister would sing. My dad would play the guitar. So we were constantly in band, constantly practice because we need to focus, focus, focus. I was not allowed to do a lot of extracurricular activities outside in the community. It was always around church, church, church. Um, so church was the drug church um, reputation was huge where what people think what people said is what we we follow you don't cry you don't feel you don't speak you don't say what you feel you put that away um you um you have to please what other people please other people do as other people say because we're open letters to the community so it was very oppressive very very oppressive we couldn't listen to music we couldn't dance no secular music what kind of what kind of music were you singing Christian gospel music, uh-huh. Christian CC Winans, um, uh, like we, we were Switchfoot, um, we were, um, what was the, gosh, Newsboys. Um, Are those um, band names? Yeah, band names okay. in the 90s, it was early 90s, late 90s, early 90s, late 90s, mid 90s, um, so it was very oppressive, and so finally, when I graduated high school, I went. I wanted to go to San Francisco, the uh, Art Academy of San Francisco, and my dad. And no, my you wanted to go to the Castro. Let's I, be exactly. honest. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they said no. Um, they got me a free ride to uh, seminary huh. in Dallas, Texas, and huh. so I went to seminary. Um, I was there for two years. Super oppressive, but I want. You know, I, pr- I wanted to prove to my parents that I. I decided to get into the closet and really prove to them that I can be without being like them. I can exist and I can be worthy without being like them. Mm. But within their household, I submitted to a lot of the dogma and the rules in the household. No music, no, um, no, no dating. No, I mean, it was super, super, super strict. My sister can have short hair. I can wear shorts. I mean, it was... I mean, if, if have you ever heard of the Pentecostal church? Yes. Yeah, I mean, were you guys like speaking in tongues? Yep, yep, that's yeah. it. Prayer, speaking in tongues, uh, vigils, going to church. Wow, well, four or five times a week. How many time. were there? A, was there a large, like how large was the church? Like were there the a lot of other families? Like 200, 200 members. Um, okay. Had a very strong youth group, a very solid youth group. I became a youth leader. Um, at a very young age, um, which I would help coordinate uh, car washes, uh, bake sales for camps and whatnot. Then when I went to seminary, I was there for two years and um, there was rumors about me being gay, but they really didn't couldn't confirm it. I wasn't going to be able to graduate. Uh, Were you doing stuff behind the scenes or? Actually, no, I was just I was just being myself. You're However, just being gay. I was just being gay. <laughs> the thing was that I started rebelling and buying, of course, Madonna CDs. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> Madonna, Angelus, Cindy yes. Lauper, um, and in my dorm room, I was hearing a lot of secular music in a Pentecostal seminary, and so it was. You know, there was rumors going around, even though I was not um, acting out. Um, and so there was there was concerns about me being a bad reputation for the organization. And when I graduated, mm-hmm. I came back to Southern California. And then when I came back to Southern California, 
Um, I be, they made me the youth leader for Southern California and Arizona. Was this just like a general like seminary or was it like Pentecostal focused? Pentecostal focused. It was this Hispanic Institute of Ministry, which was focused on Pentecostal um, uh, Spanish speaking community. You got any weird story, like weird, good stories from your time there? I think, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot of, so even though um, we consider ourselves Latinos, we're Uh very different in regards to our culture. We had people from Panama, people from Cuba, people from Nicaragua, Honduras, um, I'm Mexican. And so even though they bunched us all together, the conflict that arise was because of a clash of cultures. Uh It was a lot of clash of cultures and, um, uh, language was, even though we all spoke Spanish, language had different meaning. And so people would get very uh, offended with certain words we would say. Um, however, I think one of the key things I really uh, enjoyed about um, this school was the fact that even though we were a small segment of the school, um, I really enjoy the fact that even till today, a lot of people have left the organizations and still stay in touch with me. Mm-hmm. They, and they now and they now said we always knew you were gay mm-hmm. we always knew we never judged you but we were afraid to say anything yeah so it's like you guys have all left the cult essentially yeah some have have went to non-denominations some have done but they they're not they're not connected with the organization um but i came back to california um started pastoring and didn't I, I started doing pastoring more like outreach and community fellowship um, where I started attracting a lot of youth, a lot of mm-hmm. youth from um, schools. Uh, I did after school programming, um, vacation Bible school. And so the church just grew, grew, grew. But then they wanted me to get married. They're like, you need to get married. And I was like, I'm not I'm not doing this anymore. Um, did I did you ever date women? Oh, yeah, I dated uh-huh. one, one woman, um, a good friend of mine, Naomi. Um, however, um, she also always knew. And when I came out, she knew that I was going to, um, I, I, that I was gay, but she was super grateful that I never married her. Um, I would have never married her. Um, not because I don't love her. It's just that I would have never done that to her. That's too traumatizing. That's falling into the subscription. That's a, to the, what is it? The, the dysfunction, if you may, I'm not going to do that. And so she's super grateful. She's now married. And, um, uh, and super grateful that I did that. But after that, <laughs> I, I, at 22 years old, at 22 years old, I left the church, turned my credentials, and I came to Denver because uh, I got a scholarship at Metro State University. After I gave them my story, let them know this is who I am. I'm. Um, I was not aware of ACA by the way until 2016. Let's back up, back up. So tell me, let's talk about when you left and you turned everything in. I mean how were you just done was that something that you had been wrestling with a long time like what what did that look like i was i think for me i was done living for others yeah i was done pleasing um the church organization i was pleased done uh, living under the umbrella of of reputation Mm -hmm. reputation what other people think um what other people say that's just what we do you can't challenge this for me to be authentic and genuine it's for me to subscribe to the church dogma Mm -hmm. and i just didn't do it anymore and um finally uh, i turned in um my credentials i turned in my church. Um, and I said, I'm what out. was their response? Um, was there a, like, were they trying to like coerce you into stay? Like, is it kind of like Scientology? Yeah. So, <laughs> no, no. So what happened was I was promised uh, tuition 
and pay tuition for my undergrad and for my master's. And that had been going on for three years, promising, 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 and they never followed through. And when I applied for my scholarship through Kaiser Permanente with my story, I got a full ride scholarship. And mm-hmm. so I said, I'm leaving because I'm, you guys promised me for so long this and it didn't follow through. So I'm leaving. And so then that's what got me to Denver yeah, and they Denver. couldn't find it. They couldn't find it. They knew I could. It would be stupid for me to stay if I got a full ride. They're okay. not going to do that for me. So. OK, but that's not when you came out again. That's when I came when I oh, left, I came out okay. uh, and then that stirred up that stirred up a lot of chaos in the organization. What about within your family? Oh, that's I mean, what I they did stopped they... talking to me. They stopped talking to me for about, uh, I'd say, probably like nine months. I was uh, an embarrassment. As certain, so I have my my nuclear family, and then I have my extended family. My extended family were part of my church, and they completely mm-hmm. rejected Cut you me. off. To this yeah. day, to this day, a lot of them don't talk to me anymore because I'm, uh, I shame the family. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm, a, I'm the black sheep, if you may. Um, I humiliated and turned my back to the church and the organization. Um, some of them are, some of them like whatever it is, what it is. We always knew, but there's some that were very, um, they shunned me, and they're like, you're, you're an embarrassment to, you're like the curse of the family. Um, my parents uh, struggled with my, uh, with me being gay, um, and it took them about nine months to come around. It's not um, too long. I would think for some long. family, it's years and years. You know, yeah, not too long. Um, they thought it was contagious. <laughs> like it's, it's, wait, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was contagious that it might stick to my you know my nephews and my niece and I had a little conflict there with my sister for a while because she was afraid that it was going to confuse her son knowing that she had, he has a gay uncle and it's like what this is not like that but again it's because they subscribe to the old template the dogma of the church um but then it's almost like um, a lot of the going back to ACA, a lot of the patterns um, started showing up like not good enough, not worthy, of course. Um, the lying, the manipulation. Um, and so I uh, I stepped away from that. They did come into uh, they did talk to me again. Um, it was a slow reintroduction, if you may, mm-hmm. um, because they were still a little afraid of what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it happened again when I got married. Of course, when I got married to my husband, um, they they stopped talking to me for about two months again because they again no, even though I had long. been mm-hmm. even though I had been with partners previously two partners the fact that I married that was a total like that was by far that that's that's the nail in the coffin you're definitely going to hell um, because again um, you know because of the religious um, and their political views it just was not it was not acceptable. Two months but, is pretty mild, though. Yeah, yeah, a few months is mild. I think what, what really did help them um, is the fact that they kept seeing, I'm growing, I'm evolving, I'm not stuck. Mm-hmm. And something, the way my mom said it is that um, God is still with him. Mm-hmm. I don't know why God is still with him, but God is still <laughs> with him because he's growing, evolving, and blessed. And I can't sit back and judge what God has blessed. And so that was a turn for me. But in 2016, and so I was a probation officer for 10 years. 
That's got to um, be interesting. Frustrating. Yeah. Frustrating. And then that's when I started working with addiction. Did you ever struggle at all? No. Um, no. Um, I think for me, when, I have a brother who's in recovery for heroin. Um, and then I have a lot of family members who are in recovery from alcoholism. So it's in the genes. It's in the genes. And so for me to witness that firsthand really kept me abreast of it. However, I did see the substitute. We put the drink down and we picked up the Bible. We picked up religion. And so that was that was the drug for our family. Um, that was the codependency. That was there was a lot of unhealthy patterns of behaviors around church. So do you feel like you were actually able to help many people like as a probation officer? Yes. So when I was a probation officer for, I did it for 10 years and then I left to become a diversion officer. Um, I became a probation officer and um, I helped a lot of people, but I realized that there were, there was a lot of intergenerational trauma with a lot of uh, minorities um, and people did not understand them. There weren't that many cultural competent. Um, there was a lot of, dis- there's still disparity in our healthcare system. A lot of people will not take Medicaid. And so I started realizing a lot of the kids that were in drug court had intergenerational trauma. They were adult children of alcoholics, of substance abuse, dysfunctional families. Um, they, they were not resources. There weren't resources in the community um, that supported um, the 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 intervention was not linguistically appropriate, nor was it culturally competent to deal with mm. a lot of their issues. And so then, um, that's when I in in, in uh and when I worked for judicial, I decided to go get my master's in counseling. So when you became a probation officer, what was your undergrad in? What did you study? Human services. Human okay. services. And uh, when major- had you started to learn about the intergenerational trauma stuff? Undergrad. I started working in undergrad um, and started talking about intergenerational. I I read Dr. Gabor Matei's book in the realm of hungry ghosts, um, an encounter with addictions, and that book really opened my eyes to intergenerational trauma, different levels of addiction, dysfunctional families, um, and then I was also introduced to um, Carl Jung, mm-hmm. uh, Jungian theory, and uh, and read um, a lot of his. Uh, a lot of his papers, a lot of his books around um, his upbringing and how he was a a pastor's kid as well and how that his mom was into seances. She was spiritual. Dad was a pastor and his, his belief in higher power. He's like, there's something about wanting to please higher power, but not knowing what's the higher power within you. And so that's when I started realizing, okay, I have psychology, Carl Jung, and my experience started really funneling me into the therapist who I am and then I went to my master's and that's when I really got into union depth psychology and that's when uh, I started getting on to um, through drug court I connected a lot with um, addictions and then I um, through my master's program I connected with depth psychology so then that's where the trauma and addiction came together it was a beautiful marriage of those two mm-hmm. so your bottom yeah my bottom was 2015, I had been in a relationship and the they had broken up with me and I had my business, um, all my childhood wounds, not enough, not good enough. He, he was the 
what is it called? The trophy husband, um, mm -hmm. the jock, the good looking, uh, you know, ginger, muscular, uh, girls would drool over him, guys would drool over him. He was like the trophy husband, right? And so um, we broke up. He broke up with me because um, he said that uh, my business was growing too much. We were just, we just were not compatible anymore. And it was, it was dying and I didn't want to let go. And so finally, when we terminated, um, terminated. I, yeah, we terminated the relationship. <laughs> um, we broke up. I spiraled. Mm -hmm. I did not know who I was. It wasn't, it, I, I came home. I came home. I was at a conference in Colorado Springs symposium and I came home and when I came home his furniture was his, his his stuff was gone and all of our house was decorated with his art he was huge on art the walls were bare and I had a good friend that was my roommate here and I saw him and I walked in and I saw my house and I cannot explain the blood pressure just fell to my feet and I collapsed like this is the reality this is the personification of everything I thought I was mm. I failed I'm no good I'm not worthy I lost it I'm not good enough this I'm never gonna I mean all of those narratives those fears just came flowing and I went into this deep state of grief and I was confronted with my wounds, my childhood wounds. And I took a month off of work because I was completely, I would say borderline catatonic. Like I could not function because I was, I was pissed at my dad, pissed at my mom, pissed at my ex. I, I, I did, wasn't, I was not suicidal, but I was like, what's the point? That's exactly how I was too. I, yeah. yeah. I'm like, it's if like, this is what life is like, what's the point? What's the point? I hate, I, I should have, I want to flip burgers. I don't want to do, I don't, you know, here I am with a, uh, a practice, booming practice. And then um, I met, and then Kevin, I reached out to Kevin and I was like, I am my good friend, Kevin Peterson. And I was like, I'm lost. I'm in this dark place, space. Um, I'm not, um, I'm not healthy, but I'm not sick. And it's mm -hmm. not, you know, people are like, oh, you're acting like if you're, um, uh, you know, here comes the diagnosis, right? Uh, you know, you're depressed, major depressive uh -huh. disorder. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is not this is not major depressive disorder. This is trauma. This is, and I finally said it, this is a soul wound. Mm -hmm. This is a soul wound. This is a wound from my depths of my core that I have not dealt with, that it's coming and it's paralyzing me mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally. I don't know who I am with myself. And I journaled and I remember I said, I don't know how to be my own best friend and I would not date myself. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and I realized, and I, I read that again and again and again. It's like, holy shit, this is codependency at its best. I lost my sense of self. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think it was ever there? Yes. 
but then I attached to the people pleasing with that ex. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I was starting to flourish and then I found that person and then I attached like, oh, here, let me put all my meaning and purpose in you. Let me, um, because I did not know how to sit with, I was not fully, I was not even engaging in the process completely when I attached to somebody. Um, and like I said, some people attach to alcohol, to drugs, I attach to that person. Mm -hmm. And I can say wholeheartedly honest and take full ownership. I became codependent of that person. Mm -hmm. Like you make me happy. You are the purpose for me working. You are, I mean, and, and now looking back, it's like, it's, if you look in the dictionary for codependency, my picture would have been, <laughs> and it wasn't until I terminated that relationship that I realized I've, I've lost myself, mm -hmm. but I needed to get lost to find myself. And when that happened in 15, 16, I went into ACA and I started realizing, you know, at first I went in, I was like, this is not for me. This is not for me. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't use substances. Um, this is not for me. And then when I started reading about dysfunctional families and seeing all of the the laundry list and I'm like oh my gosh that's me to the team mm -hmm. and when I started looking at the trees of the you know all the dysfunctional branches procrastination people pleasing and just on and on and I was like this is me this is me and it's like but I'm and then but there was something in my head saying I'm not an alcoholic though I'm not a substance and then finally one of the members said you know what Alex some people put the drink down and pick up the person. You've never had the drink. You've never had the drug, but you always had the person. Mm -hmm. You left the church and you picked up a person. Picking up the person was even, was a lot more painful to me than mm -hmm. the drugs and the alcohol. Yeah. Like that, there's just, it's just the most miserable feeling in the whole world. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. And, you know, now, you know, now that I've been in ACA and I've gone through my steps and you know, I'm still working my steps and I look back, I was like, wow, I was really talk about emotional, emotionally drunk and emotionally sober. Now that you're, emo I become emotionally sober working towards that. I look back and it's like, wow, I was really numb. I was really um, in my full blown addiction of codependency, mm -hmm. like what do you want to eat? What makes you happy? Where do you want to go? How, you know, it's like my world revolves around this. And now that we terminated that relationship, here we go about that terminated, broke up. <laughs> I look back and it's like, wow. People even told me, it's like, oh my gosh, you were parenting. You were parenting. You were parenting. You became a parent to this person. I was like, wow. There it is. You were really not partners. You were more of a parent. Parent. Yeah what have been some significant ahas as far as the impact that your childhood had on you, like since joining ACA? I think for me was how subtle the messages were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I use the analogy of downloading and installation and the social environment gives you things that you get to download. And as we become teenagers and adults, we install them. And so I've always, I've always downloaded things like, this is what we do. You don't question this. This is how we do it. 
you know, machismo, toxic masculinity. I've always downloaded, downloaded, installed it. And I think for me, when I started realizing, wow, I have a lot of internalized homophobia that feeds my um, inner child wounds of scarcity of not being enough. Okay. When I started realizing that's like, where, how am I going to do with that now? Oh man, it's not, I can't sit here and blame my mom and dad today. I have to, again, I can't go back and change the past. I'm not responsible for my wounding, but I am responsible for my healing. So what am I going to do now, right here and now? Am I going to sit here and cross my arms and just curse my parents? Or am I going to actually do the work? And what does that look like? Does it start with forgiveness, awareness, journaling, and doing an inventory of what, how has being attached or allowing this installation or download stay within my psyche, my system, my soul, my core? How has it contaminated me? How has it served as a mold in my relationship with other people? Am I projecting a lot? Am I being insecure? Am I gossiping? Am I, you know, what are some of the unhealthy behaviors that I'm engaging in because of my downloads, because of my installation? And, and that, that whole working the steps has really helped me do a, what is it, an internal audit, cleaning of myself and work on the healing. Why? I don't think you're going to have an answer for this. It's kind of similar to like addiction. I really don't, I don't know why some people are able to get sober and other people aren't. It almost just seemed, I mean, I'm sure there's some, I don't know. I hate saying like that God's involved because I believe we all have our, you know, higher power, but like, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know why some people have all the best resources at their fingertips and never get sober. Somebody, you know, all that stuff. And it's like the same thing with like adult child. Like, why is it that some people are able to get to a place where they're finally ready to do the work and other people aren't, you know, it just seems like it's just random, you know? Yeah. I think in my experience, I can speak on my experience. I've learned um, to understand that life is full of complexities. It's always going to be complex and there's always going to be that duality as you, it's like the onion the more you you heal, the more stuff that's going to come out and understand that all of that is going to serve for you to become a better person. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, now that I'm at, you know, I'm, I came out at 22, I'm now 43, 20, uh, you know, uh, 21 years after. And I look back at everything I've gone through, all the struggles, and I realize everything had a purpose in that exactly. moment. Exactly. Everything I now understand why I had to have that breakup in 2015 in order to me to be successful where I'm at today. I know why I had to break up with that horrible first relationship that they cheated on me because that was going to help me be who I am today. In the moment, it mm-hmm. seems like I want to give up. In the moment, it seems like a burden so heavy. In the moment, Carl Jung says we're in the swamp land of the soul. In the moment, we're in that swamp land, but. It's up to you if you want to give in or continue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about as far as, because like for me, you know, I hit my adult child bottom at at nine years and that's kind of like when I started to really dig into this stuff. I think that 
a lot of people who can't stay sober is because they're not addressing this stuff. However, I have mixed feelings as far as when to start really diving into this stuff because it's really heavy, you know? And so it's like countering, okay, we got to take them as they're killing it. You know, we got to get the one that's killing us first, uh, which is the sobriety. Like we need to get sober. And I think we need to get a solid grounding there in order to be able to start digging into this stuff. But what about if this stuff is preventing us from getting sober, you know? So what's your, like, how do you handle that? Twofold. Uh So coming from a depth psychological union perspective, I think. What does depth psychology mean? Because I saw, do you have your PhD in it or are you working on it now? I'm I'm, I'm working towards it. I'm working towards it. Okay. What the hell does that mean? Depth psychology is, so when you look at um, the fathers of psychology, it's uh, Freud, Mm -hmm. Carl Jung, Alfred Adler. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that uh, differentiates Jung is the definition of psyche. For him, psyche equals soul. Okay. Um, so Freud did not look like, I mean, not, not Freud, uh, Jung. Jung did not focus only on psychopathology, sickness, the way Freud did. Okay. He only looked at psychology as a way to define sickness, pathology. Jung said, wait a minute. We can also look at psychology as both, as to define hurt and wounds, but also to define empower, strength from psyche, from soul. So when we talk about depth psychology, it's not only looking at it from an ego perspective, but also looking at it from a soulful perspective, something that um, almost like the internal light concept flame fire that either is shut off depressed neurosis upset trauma or is lit which gives you the inspiration motivation to keep moving forward and in life there's going to be events according to depth psychology like depression when depression shows up depth psychology says what is depression asking of you and from you Mm. Does that make sense? So it do, you don't look at it as pathology. You look at it as it's it's a purposeful. way. Purposeful. Yeah. Purposeful. Soul is showing up through means of, of depression to ask you to change something within you. Does that make sense? So it's very Absolutely. soulful. And so when we talk about psychology, according to Jung, psychology is this research of psyche. Um, psychiatrist is medication of the psyche psychotherapy is tending to soul. So when we do psychotherapy from a psychological point, you tend to your soul. You tend to your wounds. You tend to the uh, damage that's done to you. So that's a depth psychological term. So that's where we come. So when we talk about from a depth psychology, we use the Greek definition of psyche, which is soul. So we're going to do some soul tending, soul work. So then that being said, when we talk about trauma, we're going to use the Greek definition of trauma, which is wounds. So let's look at the soul wounds that you've had throughout your life and impacted your perspective, impacted how you see the world, your glasses. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it gives the client a sense of empowerment instead of pathology. I'm sick. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? And Mm -hmm. so that's, so so, so that's depth psychology. 
for for me, what's what's really um, has helped or what's really helped formulate through a depth psychological point is understanding that everything that I've gone through in my life has served a purpose to be for my individuation, for my self-actualization. I had to go through everything to be who I am today, mm-hmm. to be able to sit with you, to share this um, podcast with other people. To, to, it, 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 so I was able to achieve medicine by tending to my wounds as you are, as anyone is able to. Anybody can do this. Mm-hmm. So what about to circle back to the addiction, like when to address this stuff when it comes to addiction? I think when it comes to addiction is, are you, I, I go back, what would heroin say to you right now? What would alcohol say? If we can give a microphone to alcohol, what would it say? You can't live without me. You depend on me. You need me to numb you. You need me to survive. You need me to function. So we personify from a depth psychological point. What is the alcohol? What is the substance? What is the addiction asking of you, from you, by you? Are you, you know, you need me in order to survive, to not feel, to numb. Okay. So what is that saying about you? You're wounded. You're hurt. Are you willing to to take away the substance that's numbing? Are you willing to tend to that? And do you have the ego strength to admit it, to address it? You know how we can say, walk it off, walk it off, walk it off. And, you know, when you hurt yourself, just walk it off. You'll be fine. We tend to do that. Just walk it off. We'll just just forget about it. You just under, sweep it. Yeah, under you the walk yourself off a damn cliff. <laughs> <laughs> and then you start realizing the addiction has gotten worse, 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 because you don't want to, you don't have the ego strength to do it. And so a lot of people, um, when we look at why do people continue going back to old patterns? Because it's a lot of work. Exactly. And I'm not ready. It's too painful. It's too hurtful. Or I don't have this system to support me during my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crucial. Yeah, I saw one of your other videos. You were talking about sacrifice. Yeah. About with healing and transformation. Do you want to touch upon that? Yeah. So part of that sacrifice has to do with, um, am I willing to sacrifice ego? Like for example, I've always been transparent. I've always, you know, a lot of my a lot of my people know who I am and what's my story. And so, am I willing to sacrifice face to show up authentically? Mm-hmm. Am I willing to to be uh, vulnerable and allow give room? For example, when I talk about my woundings, my rejection, am I willing to allow myself, give myself permission? to be vulnerable and shed a tear or two because of my wounding and allow myself to be in that space? Or am I too worried about, oh, uh, people are going to judge me, criticize me, I'm going to be seen as weak. Because that interferes with the healing process. That interferes with the process of flow, letting this out, processing. And so when we look at, can I honor that space within me? Mm A lot of people struggle with that because they don't have the ego strength or they don't have, they don't give themselves permission to be open and vulnerable to allow that healing to come through. Yeah. I think another thing too, that's important um, or what I'd like to ask you about is just dealing with the resistance that comes up as we're on our healing journey. I mean, the the fact of the matter is like, this isn't going to just be like a steady 
<laughs> climb up and you yeah. know we might start to we might start to feel better but then you know we kind of hit low points and how to understand that that doesn't mean that we're not changing right like the resistance and the pain is is all part of the process right right it's all part of the process and it's part of the healing i always say hurt is part of healing think about surgery when I go through surgery, we get painkillers to not feel pain. But if it's hurting, that lets you know it's part of the healing. Mm-hmm. Hurt mm-hmm. is part of the healing. So think about it. Um, when you get, I remember when I got um, appendicitis and I, they gave me pain medications that, and they said, it's not, it's not going to take care of all the pain. You're still going to feel some hurt. But that lets you know that hurt, the hurt that you feel is going to let you know that you're healing. And we have to understand that that is our natural way of our body, our psyche, our spirit, our soul, letting us know we're healing when we allow the pain to come through the flow. When you break your arm, ah, I'm hurting. I can't sleep. It hurts so much. Right. Pain is part of the healing. Hurt is part of the healing. We can't heal without honoring it. Exactly. Um, can we talk, I want to talk a little bit about, um, just like various healing modalities. So, you know, I know that with EMDR, obviously the research shows that it's most effective when you're dealing with kind of a a big T trauma that's more recent. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on using that for complex trauma and childhood trauma. And, you know, my understanding is that in order for it to be effective, you really have to take some more time in those preparatory phases uh, before you actually like get into like doing the damn thing. Right. Correct. And so when we go back to that ego strength, Mm -hmm. um, part of EMDR, the protocol is, is the person stable? Is the person able to allow the flow of hurt and pain and be, have dual awareness? Mm -hmm. Can they be aware of the pain and stay present in the moment? Mm-hmm. And they be aware of the pain and not disassociate and not check out. Mm-hmm. And they be in the pain and allow themselves to get outside or in the edge of that window of tolerance as they allow this processing to go through. Mm-hmm. If they can't, that means that we have to solidify ground, do more grounding, do more container, more sort of space so that they can feel comfortable within their psyche, within their body, within themselves to get to that point. It takes time. It's not like, you know, when people say uh, I'm able to do EMDR in 12 sessions and we're done. No, there's people who take uh, time. It could take six months. Um, I, I work with survivors of sex trafficking and they've taken two years to get to a point where they can start with the process mm. because they need to feel comfortable in their skin within mm-hmm. their psyche to be able to process a lot of their trauma. And part of that's going to take time building rapport, trusting themselves as well. So do you think like, what are, so I know you do like CBT stuff. What about DBT? Like, mm-hmm. how is that beneficial for, um, for, for trauma? I think that the dialectic, um, so when we talk about DBT, it's, it's dialectical behavioral therapy, having that awareness, the dual awareness. This is my, my rational mind. This is my emotional mind. And then there's the wise mind when Mm -hmm. I'm able to balance my rational and my emotional mind and not be irrational 
impulsive or emotional reactive does that make sense Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because what tends to happen is when i am not coming from a wise mind a balanced mind centered mind i tend to overanalyze and because i overanalyze i create narratives that are not true Mm -hmm. and because i overanalyze i overwhelm Mm -hmm. and because i'm overwhelming i overanalyze because i overanalyze i'm overwhelmed and so i'm reactive 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 because mm-hmm. I'm not coming from a Y space. So then that lets the client know, okay, I can take a step back and I can see, okay, what is the thought that's coming up for me? What's the emotion? Those are two different things that are influencing each other. What's the wise thing to do right now? Not make a decision, not say that statement, not, you know, not react to a text, not, you know, lash out. Okay. Why? Because I'm coming from a irrational place or I'm coming from an emotional space. So what do you need right now to de-escalate and be able to be wise in what you say? Intentional. Working on the four pillars of emotional regulation, interpersonal relationships, mindfulness, and distress tolerance. Obviously, we're we're all unique and we all have our own healing journey. Right. Um, how, and there's many modalities, how does one know if, if this whatever modality they're using is not a good fit for them or if it's resistance at play, trying to get them to just stop healing. (laughs) I think it's very, number one, be honest with yourself. I've had several situations where um, uh, I had just about earlier this year, I was working with this one specific individual that she, we started doing work around her trauma, her child, her trauma around her dad. And I started noticing that every time she'd come in, she would ask me, are you mad at me? Are mm. you mad at me? Mm. And I was like, no, but this is concerning. What's the narrative? And she started saying, I'm starting to realize that I'm worried that you're going to be mad at me because of X, Y, and Z. And I said, you know what? Now you're projecting your childhood trauma onto me. So is this going to work? Or do you need to find a therapist who's not a male? Mm. And she's like, I don't know. Let me think about it. The following week, she came back. She goes, no, I do need a new therapist. Why? Because I'm projecting. I'm now seeing you and treating you as my dad. dad, And I'm asking you every time I come in, are you mad at me? And it wasn't until you said it that I realized it. So I think being honest with yourself and realizing, is this working for me? If it's not, say it's not working for me and tell the therapist, you are the consumer. You are the customer. It's like, you know what? This isn't what happens if something's not cooked the way you want it. You send it back. It's the same way. It's like, hey, something's not working for me. Can we explore different options? Or do you have a referral that I can go with someone? I'm not a good fit for everybody. I know that 100%. But then I also know that people don't know that I'm not a good fit for them. And I can tell, hey, I don't think this is a good fit for you and I. Uh, How about we explore these other options? Here's why. I'm not rejecting you. It's because you need a little bit more of this, of this, of this. And I, I, I can't offer you that. So it would be a, a disservice to continue seeing you. But I think that honesty within yourself and advocacy for yourself to say, this is not working. It's not going to offend. It's, it's, I mean, you're paying for it. You're a consumer. You have the right to that. So I want to kind of close with, um, that's not my chicken. Um, but first, can you tell, so in the, you just did this TEDx talk. Right. And in the beginning, I, I needed more information. So I need more. So somebody was impersonating you. Yes. Please there share. Was, 
Yes. So, so this is it, when you were a, pro a probation a officer probation or officer. you were doing diversion? No, this is when I was a full-blown probation officer. If you, okay. Google, if you guys, anybody can Google this. Denver juvenile probation officer impersonated. You'll see the whole Denver post, the picture of the person who did it. So I was a probation officer and this city employee impersonated me to groom a 15-year-old child. So were you working with youth? Like were yes. they okay. I was in drug court. I was working in drug court and a city employee impersonated me to get to a 15-year-old boy. How did they do like they went to their house or what were they doing? Um in Denver, the probation building is catty corner to the city and county building. And so he would park outside and look at who was coming out of the building. And so that's how we picked him. And so he groomed him, showed him his badge and let him know. Um, your probation officer referred me to you. I'm your social worker. And that's how he, he introduced himself as, as his social worker. And then he eventually took him out on the weekends. You know, it, the whole article explains everything. And when mom would pick up, when, when he would come home late, he would say that he was with me. Um, and so when mom called, he picked up the phone and said he identified himself as me saying, wow. this is Alex Castro, your son's probation officer. He's with me and I'll take him home whenever I'm ready. And, and I was so how the, long was it until, so initially were you getting, they thought it was you. They thought it was me. And so it happened on the weekend. So it was like a Friday afternoon. So Friday to Monday, um, I received at least 35, 40 phone calls, curse words, insults in Spanish um, of them calling me, you know, they're going to go to the newspapers. They're going to go for to back to um you know, investigators, you know, you know, to different TV channels, of special investigators. And then um, when I came in the office, that's when I heard all the messages and it just, it's like, wait, what? This is, this can't be. And that, and then that's when I, the whole investigation started. But How I long was it until they figured out who it was? Um, it, it was very, the kid that, like two days, three days, the kid was invested, uh, in, they investigated, they interviewed and they found out who it was right away within wow. two days. Yeah. Do you know what were they charged with? Um, I believe it's contributing to a delinquency of a minor. It's all in the news article. Contributing to a impersonation of a law enforcement because I'm, I'm probably in the state of Colorado. We're considered law enforcement impersonation of law enforcement. Um, I think he got hit with sex offender. Um, uh -huh. So there's a whole bunch of there's like four or five charges that he got hit with. Yeah. When was in, that? 2008, 2009. Wow. That was, that was okay. That was a long time ago. Okay. Long so tell the, that's not my chicken story. So not, that's not my chicken. So not my chicken is a coping mechanism that came out of working with somebody near and dear to my heart. Um, they were working at a local grocery store and um, they were, were in charge of the deli. And so they had a fried chicken. And so this elderly couple would always come into uh, the deli and ask for a piece of ham, chicken, a piece of uh, potato, and he would give it to them but the chicken would be burning. And after three, four visits, he lost it, cursed at them. They reported him. He, um, he had to go take some classes as a result of his um, temper. Explosive, yeah, his temper. And when working with him, I talked to him about, you know, what, um, you know, did you lose your job because of the chicken burning? No. Did they cut your hours? No. Did they change you to change from departments? No. So why are you getting mad, upset over chicken that doesn't belong to you? It's not your chicken. Don't take ownership of something that doesn't belong to you. You have a responsibility, but it's not your. It's not yours to take on. And so, not my chicken 
um, is a way of reminding yourself when you are dysregulated mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, when you're stuck or not able to function, you're taking on something that doesn't belong to you. It's not my chicken. And so um, I've used this a lot with professionals, doctors, nurses, counselors, people that I've trained, law enforcement agencies, um, as a way of coping mechanism when you're going home. And as you're going home, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm dysregulated. I, you have to ask yourself, what am I taking home that doesn't belong to me? Is this mm-hmm. my chicken? No, mm-hmm. it's not my chicken. So when you leave work and you feel like you're dysregulated, you're, you're, you're discombobulated, you feel like mentally, emotionally, you're not able to function. Um, one of the coping skills that I always tell people to use is do a check-in check, a chicken check-in, like (laughs) a chicken check-in, you know, is it mentally, is it emotionally, is it physically, what is it that I'm feeling dysregulated in? Oh, you know what? It's about my thoughts. Okay. What are you taking on that doesn't belong to you? Oh, the fight that my employer had with my coworker. Okay. Is that yours? No, then leave it alone. Let it go. So it's a, it's a way of setting boundaries, healthy boundaries within yourself and others. Well, I'm glad that it's not, that's not my cheese because like every cheese is my cheese. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And so it's, it's, I got, um, I got a Ted talk and TEDx talk and it became, it's, it just blew up and people now people see me as like, Hey, you're the chicken guy. (laughs) T-shirts. Yes. We need merch. If you don't do it, I'm going to steal it. So yeah, my chicken, yeah. yeah, definitely. So it's I'll become, give you a cut. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's become a thing of not my chicken. People uh, have been using it a lot. And so, um, I mean, it's an honor to have people say it, but it, it's, it's, it's a huge coping mechanism around boundaries and self-care. I love it. Definitely. So when Kevin mentioned, he was like, oh, he's going over to Europe to do shit. What are you doing over there? Are you well, going over there to study I, yes, or what do you do? I, yeah. So I go to the Zurich Institute, the Union Institute, um, every two years, um, they have intensives. And so I get different uh, techniques from a depth psychological school on how to come back and work with trauma, with adolescence and addiction, and how to apply those concepts from a soulful perspective. So I go every two years to Europe, to Zurich, Switzerland, to get that training. And then I go um, facilitate, I get invited to go do trainings and conferences all over based on my modalities and the treatment that I do. So yeah. Love that. So is there any like new research that's come out lately that's kind of interesting at all to what we talk about on this podcast? <laughs> I think of anything, there's there's going to be, I think there's starting to come out a lot of, I don't know if you've noticed that there's this rise of soulfulness mm-hmm. that's coming up with psychology. So I would say keep your eyes and um, ears open because they're starting to incorporate a lot of um spirituality with psychology and um as it shows up in body as it shows up in dream i do a lot of dream work with people around trauma what is the theme let's do animation and that's that's a whole another conversation of how are your dreams speaking to you about your wounds about your lack of work or your progress in life and so we're starting to realize this huge shift in paradigm yes about research still there but a, com- a strong component of spirituality when it comes to healing. Well, this has been amazing. We're definitely going to have you back. 
Thank uh, you. What do you want to push? What do you want to promote? Where where do you want to be found? Do you want to be found? Yes. Yeah. So if people want to look for me, they can look at for me at either liferecoverycenters.net on my website or Transcending Consulting Group. If they want to, like I said, I do a lot of training, um, a lot of consulting in the community. Um, you can look at my uh, transcendingconsultinggroup.com or they can look at um, Life Recovery Centers. That's my outpatient trauma addiction center as well. Do you do any um, virtual work or no? Yeah, I do virtual work as well. Yeah, okay. I do virtual. But do you have to I, live in? Do you have to live in Colorado? Yes, I. You have to live okay. in Colorado, and then, unless you're doing consulting, you don't yeah, need yeah. to live in Colorado. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. Well, that wraps up today's episode. You're welcome. That was some good shit. Uh, go check out uh, the show notes for more on on Alex. And if you live in Colorado, lucky you. Go go hit up his services. Um, <sighs> what else? I don't know. I'm going to visit my grandmother on Thursday. So she is going into hospice. I'm not quite sure, you know, how much time she has but I'm going to go spend time with her. And um, I think I've shared a little bit in previous episodes, but her and I have really bonded over the past few years, really on the, the shared experience of, (laughs) of our dysfunctional family. And it's just been really amazing to connect with her on that level. I've never, you know, growing up, she never lived where I lived and, you know, I'd see her once or twice a year, but kind of through, my healing journey and then me starting this podcast and uh, her listening to my podcast, which I just think is so cool that my 80, I can't remember how old you are, grandma, 85, 86 year old grandma is, is, is listening to, um, to this. It was so funny when I went to visit her back in May. So she lives in this, you know, like a senior community. Um, and we, these, these nuns that I guess my grandma knew from a while ago, like their nunnery or I don't know what you call it, um, was closed. And so a bunch of them moved into this, um, to the center that my grandma lives in. And so we went and had, had, uh, lunch one day with this, one of the nuns, sister Leona. She was so tiny. She was probably like 4'11". I like towered over her. Um, but yeah, she was, she was like nine, she was like 92. It was crazy. And she's like walking and she had like a little scooter and she had become a nun, I think at like 18 years old, 19 years old. And it was insane. But I was telling her about the podcast and, um, and she's like, I really would like to listen to it. Like, how do I do that? And I was like, I curse, (laughs) I curse a lot in here. I don't know if you want to listen to it, but, um, ever since that, then whenever my grandma sees this nun, she always, the nun always tells my grandma just like, how um how glad she was that she got to to meet me and that my grandma must be so proud of me so it's special um yeah i'm just wondering what sort of what sort of feelings all of this is going to bring up for me cuz i've been feeling some feelings and it's more deeply rooted um so I, i'm open i'm open to it and just grateful for all the the love and support that i have um, so thank you to all my peeps out there. I love you all so very much. Um, that be it. Okay. That be it. I'm going to be seeing you shit shows next week for another fucking amazing episode of adult child. It's going to be super awesome. I'm so excited. 
for y'all to hear it, it's going to be a goodie, I promise. Let it all go.